the tax benefit really is income going to a company and taxed at 25% or income going to other individuals. So to use multiple tax rates or deductions being claimed, if none of those things are happening, then of course there's no need to really worry. But if those things are happening, particularly if they're on a substantial scale, then that's, that's where the risk lies. Listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 301 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. So, in the last episode, we looked at the history of PSI and went through a number of court cases as well as ITs and TRs, and these rulings are still relevant since they haven't been revoked. In this episode, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will walk you through the actual PSI rules. When do you have PSI, so personal services income, and when do you run a PSB? a personal services business. Andrew will also touch on recent court cases and discuss the very controversial PCG 2021-D2, currently still in draft form. Those rules, by and large, haven't changed in the last 20 years. We've got a few uh, key concepts in those rules. The PSI rules haven't changed a lot in, in the last um, 20 years. We've got a few, I guess, tests to apply. And if those tests apply, then income can be um, personal services income and attributed to an individual. What that means is that the individual needs to include it in their um, tax and the entity that um, derived the PS. Oh, sorry, the personal services entity um, may have PYG withholding obligations, which was relevant last year in terms of the cash flow boost and things around that. Now, there's a few tests to get through to work out whether something is, is PSI or not. So we have PSI, PSB, and PSE. Yep. Yep. So we start with section 84-5, which defines what PSI is, personal services income which essentially says that an amount is PSI if that income is mainly a reward for your personal efforts or skill. So what's required by that? What's required by that is that more than half of the relevant amount of income is for personal efforts or skills as distinct from amounts for the supply of goods or amounts from that are derived from a business structure or other things, essentially other situations where the income is not a reward for personal efforts or skills. And of course, that's going to require uh, an exercise in practical judgment as to work out whether something is for personal uh, exertion or skills, or it's because of the ownership of an asset or from a business structure. To take an example, if you have someone who's purchased a tip pretty significant piece of machinery, let's say like a large truck, and they're paid to drive the truck. That may not be because of their personal efforts and skills. It may be because they own the truck. No truck drivers fall under the PSI rules, thanks to the truck. No operators of heavy machinery, so crane drivers, etc. No operators of heavy machinery fall under the 
PSI routes. Mm, yeah, I think that would be largely correct. If they've owned, if they own sort of substantial assets, then the income is derived from those assets rather than from personal efforts or skills. Now, if they didn't own the assets, it'd be very different. Exactly. The truck driver needs to be an owner driver. If he's not an owner driver, then of then the PSI rules apply. Yep. So if we if it's not if it's not mainly a reward for personal efforts or skills, we're out. We're not in PSI territory anymore and the PSI rules are not applicable. If that's not the case, we then need to consider a series of tests and whether or not we meet those tests. So the next way out of the rules is to meet the results test. So what that requires is the income needs to be for, seven, at least 75% of the income needs to be for producing a result. And that's typically met where the contract specifies the price is paid for the completion of some part of work rather than payments based on hours worked. So what's required is the income needs to be for producing a result. The relevant person is needs to be, uh, they need to supply the equipment or tools that are necessary to do the work. And the person needs to be liable for the cost of rectifying any defective work. So, so really those last two points they, I guess, are looking at, is the person providing the tools and are they liable for any, do they bear risk in this arrangement, really? And if you put truck drivers and operators aside, you know, operators of heavy machinery aside and just kind of look at normal professionals, so accountants, tax agents, architects, consultant engineers, etc., then I think it all comes down to, Are you paid by the hour or are you paid a fixed price? Because when you look at the tools, usually the tools for all of the professions we, we I just listed, the tool is always just a computer. And yes, the professional usually provides their own computer. So that's usually a yes. And then do you have to fix your own mistakes is usually also a yes. So even if you're paid by the hour, usually if you make a big mistake, you usually have to fix it and can't charge those hours. So it really comes down to, are you paid by the hour or are you paid a fixed fee? Hence, you're just paid for the result. Yeah, yeah. Another example is, is the builder, for example, is building a house. Question, what about material plus contracts? They would count as a fixed price as well because the price is not linked to the amount of, the, the amount of time they take. It's linked to the end result and how much material that used. So a material plus result would also be a, uh, would also pass the results test. Yep, that's correct. Yep, yep. So, and it's, it's handy to note also that if the if the job doesn't require significant plant and equipment or tools that are not necessary to perform the work, then that condition is automatically satisfied and that's accepted by the commissioner as well. So, but if we fail the results test, if if it's for uh, you know hourly work, then it's not the it's not the end of the road. We then have to meet one of the other tests. Firstly, we can't have more than eighty percent of our income from one entity or their associates. So we need to have some diversification of income. And then we need to meet one of, of, of three tests. Can I just quickly ask you something? This 80%, is this 80% only about 
how many different clients we have or is the 80% does the 80% also pop up in the results test the results test refers to a 75% of oh, the work okay. needs to be from producing results but for those three tests that determine whether you're a personal services business there's an 80% uh, requirement so not more than 80% can be from one particular entity if it is then then you 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 fail all of the tests subject to obtaining the commissioner's discretion. So results test is 75% and then the subsequent PSB test is, tests, the yep. PSB test is 80%. Yep. Yep. So we've got the unrelated clients test, the employment test and the business premises test. So starting from probably I guess what's most straightforward is the business premises test. That requires you to maintain and use business premises. So if you if you have business premises, you can you can get out of the rules on this alone. Now there are a few conditions that that attach to that. It's not as simple as just saying you've got business premises and that's enough. What is required is that those need to be the place where you mainly conduct activities to produce your income. They need to be physically separate from the person's private residence. And the individual has to have exclusive use of those premises as well. It can't be a shared workspace. Yeah, well, the shared workspaces are a bit of a problem because while the commissioner says that areas such as receptions and waiting rooms are ancillary, you do need to have some area where, which is your exclusive use. And it specifically states in the relevant rulings that if the premises are occupied under a license, then that's not enough. And these rules have been around for 20 years, but I guess in more recent times, there's been a real boom in serviced office arrangements and co-working spaces. At least from my experience, I've seen that um, those arrangements generally don't provide for exclusive possession, they're, they're license arrangements. Even if you have an allocated room? So even, even if you if have an allocated room, yeah. Okay. It really, it, it seems a bit unfair, but in those situations, it really boils down to the contractual terms rather than the what it looks and feels like to, to the outside world. You, you may even have your own room with your own key, but technically be a, be a license. So you may have some, some problems there. Also, it does exclude things like home offices, and um, it's pretty clear that, that it needs to be physically distinct from your from your private residence. So home office does not qualify under the business premises test? No, no. Can I just quickly ask you something? And that is, I always get confused with PSI, PSE and PSB. So PSI is the personal services income. And that's basically covered in the first test when we ask is 50% or more or less for your labor or for something else. And so if we fail that test, meaning we have more than 50% for our labor, it basically means we do have personal services income. So it means we do have PSI. Then the next question about results and then whether 75% of our work is for specific result with our own tools and we have to fix our own mistakes. If we pass that one, it still means we have PSI, but we, we, we don't fall under the PSI rules, but we are not a PSB. I assume that that already would be a PSB, you know, personal services business that has personal services income, but doesn't fall under the rules. Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think the, the practical answer to that is if you meet the results test, you're not within application of 
the personal services rules generally. Okay, so it means if you meet the results test, you don't actually derive personal services income. Yep. Even though 50%, more than 50% is for your labor, since you deliver a result, you, you don't derive personal services income. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yep. Yeah, okay. so it, it should be thought of as similar to being a personal services business because the result is practically the same regardless of which way you get there. Yes, that's what I was aiming for. We basically can have a PSB out of the results test as much as out of the 80% test. Yeah, from a practical perspective, yeah. yeah. Those are the four rules, whereas rule number three and number four are really the same rule, just with, with two steps. Yep. The first one is, do you even have personal services income? The second question is, do you deliver a result or are you really just paid by the hour? And then the third question is, do you run the whole thing like a business? And hence you have a PSB because you have employees, you have your own business premises and you have many different clients. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we've talked about the business premises test. And just to cover the other two, one of the other ones is the employment test, which requires that the entity engages one or more other entities to do at least 20% of the, of the principal work. So, in other words... And that can is be all family work, members. Yeah. Is, is all the work being done by one person or is, or is there some outsourcing going on here? And what's critical is the work that we're talking about is, is something called principal work. It is work that's central to meeting the individual's obligations for whatever the service is. And specifically, the tax rulings note that things like clerical and administrative work is not principal work. So, in other words, if you want to employ your spouse to do administrative work, that will not meet the employment test unless the contract is for administrative work. And that's a big one because very often, for example, if, you know, a lot of trade businesses, the plumber, the electrician is out there doing the principal work and the wife is at home, runs, runs the family, runs the books, runs the phone and does administrative work. So that I can imagine that really bites. But I also can imagine that in practice, it doesn't see that much application. I can imagine a lot of partnerships still do go 50-50, even though there is this split in labor. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And then the most complex of these tests and probably the one with the most um, uncertainty is the unrelated clients test. Now, on one sense, this test is pretty simple, but it actually is quite complex. So in order to meet this test, we need to produce income from at least two or more entities that are not associated with each other or the contractor. Now, that's that part of it's pretty simple. Do you have at least two clients and are they related to each other? The more complex part of the test is that the services that are provided need to be as a direct result of the entity making offers or invitations to the public large or sections of the public. So really, while it's called the unrelated clients test, it's really the advertising test. It's an easier way to think about it really because what's required, it's not enough to have unrelated clients. You need to have unrelated clients that have engaged the business 
because of you making offers or invitations to the public or a section of the public. So word of mouth doesn't count. Generally, word of mouth is a problem and doesn't count. The authority for that case is the engineering company, 2008 AAT case, and also Cameron, which is cited by the ATO in their updated ruling. So in situations where the services are not particularly niche and offered to a wide range of industries, then they word of mouth doesn't count and speaking to just just hitting up people or cold calling them is not enough. Those are personal offers. They're not capable of acceptance by the public or a section of the public. They're just really personal connections. So those can be a problem. The complicating factor is there are at least one case where it has been accepted, which is a case called Yalos. In that case, it was held that word of mouth offers can be okay, but only where there are very, very limited players that would possibly accept your services. And by maintaining regular contact with those um, possible clients, the personal word, the personal recommendations and word of mouth could can be enough. And it was held to be enough. But it was only because there was such a small number of companies involved. And it was to do with off- offshore petroleum exploration. And, and it was a highly technical skill that the person was providing. So in those circumstances, word of mouth can be enough. But the general rule is that it's not. And there are also restrictions on if you have obtained work through employment agencies or as a result of just responding to job ads, those things are not enough. So so what's required is really at least some evidence that offers are being made to the public or a section of the public in a really simple sense. You know, the plumbers that send around fridge magnets to uh, <laughs> to everyone in the neighborhood, well, they're making an offer. Is, is a website enough? A website, I mean, there's nothing to say that a website on its own is enough, but With blog posts? Yeah, like, you know, a website, maintaining a LinkedIn profile, maybe some Google AdWords and search engine optimization. There's there's nothing that says that one particular thing is enough on its own, but I I would say you need to have a website as as to have any chance of uh, um, qualifying unless, I mean, we're not talking about 2001 anymore. We're talking about 2021 where pretty much anyone finds anything on the internet. So, yes, I think having a website is essential. Those are the tests and, and and really other than some case law that's happened mainly to do with that unrelated clients test, there hasn't really been a lot of movement over the last um, 20 years. We did have a board of tax review in 2009, which made some quite interesting findings. Firstly, it said that there was a, an evidence of a low level of compliance with the PSI rules. That actually surprised me. It said that there was difficulty in applying the rules, which is, is true. There is and that difficulty can lead to a degree of uncertainty or, or grayness around the rules. And of course, where there's uncertainty or grayness, there's always uh, opportunities to interpret things in, in the manner that's more favorable, which allows for the income splitting, of course. So most interestingly, it noted that the rules are really intended to reduce the commissioner's reliance on part 4A to deal with, to, to deal with avoidance. But because a large number of taxpayers still do assess themselves as PSBs, there is a continued reliance on Part 4A by the ATO. I think that's a really interesting statement. And of course, when the PSI rules were introduced, it was very clear that they 
and the ATO continues to make this point now, the PSI rules are not intended to switch off Part 4A. They're really intended to sort of supplant Part 4A and make it easier for the commissioner to run cases where there is, I guess, income splitting in an inappropriate sense. I think from memory, and I might be wrong, but I think from memory that the individual tax return, the business section for sole traders, does ask about PSI. And I kind of wonder why. Because when somebody operates as a sole trader, there is not that much room. Whether you apply the PSI rules or not, it doesn't make such a big difference. The only thing then it really comes down to whether you can apply whether you can employ family members or not. I think that would just come down to deductions. I mean, if they were individual, then the income is going to be the same, but there is different rules for deductions. As a sole trader, what can they not deduct if the PSI rules apply? Yeah, so if the PSI rules apply, apply there's an entire division called Division 86, which, which deals with it. In essence, they cannot deduct things, sorry, it's division 85, they cannot deduct things that an employee wouldn't be able would not, to would not be able to deduct, essentially. And that would be mainly salary for others. That would be mainly employing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And maybe um, for the cost of um, uh, rent over uh, part of their primary residence, for example, or um, something like that, which, which is specifically carved out as well. I see. So uh, when you run a small business from home and you rent your home, then you can claim a portion of the rent. But when you work from home as an employee, then you can't claim a portion of your rent. Yeah, correct. Yep. Yep. So, so take the example where you've got uh, it's clearly a, a business part of your premises and um, you pay rent and so forth. If you're an employee, it's going to be very difficult to run that argument. The ATO certainly doesn't accept it. If you fail the PSI rules, you definitely can't because it's specific, the rules specifically say you cannot deduct that. But if you don't, if you're a, a PSB, for example, then yeah, you should be able to deduct that. Yes. And if you're a PSB, because for example, you have many different clients and if you're a PSB, you can tax deduct part of your rent, even if your office is not readily visible as a as an office from outside, you know, let's say you're a web designer who, and you run an online business and there is no sign on the door that says that, that there is your business there, but you pass the test because you have many different clients, then you can still tax deduct the a portion of your rent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole area with cases on its own, but yeah, it's a general principle then, then yes, you, you, you could in that situation. So the two main things is rent and salaries. Yeah. So I suppose all of that is interesting and, 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 and really the thing, the question now is, okay, where, where are we at now? And particularly for professional services, because there's been quite a bit of movement in this area over the last um, six years or so. Professional services have had a number of ATO guidelines issued um, since around 2015. And the ATO has adopted what's called, I guess, a swim between the flags type approach. It all started with a document called Assessing the Risk Allocation of Profits Within Professional Firms, which was referred to as the ATO Guidelines. Now, this was in response to, there was a tax alert from 2013 and some, some, some questions were asked about, well, what's, what, what can professional services firms do? 
Now, the guidelines first talk about PSI and, and generally for professional services firms, PSI is not going to be an issue because either the income is not derived as a result of a in, mainly for an individual's personal exertion, or even if it was, we could get out of it through the results test. And if it's not that, well, there's clearly business premises, there's clearly employees and they advertise and make offers to the public and so forth. So professional service firms like accountants, lawyers, engineering firms and others, it's hard to think of many situations where they would actually breach the PSI rules. So leaving the PSI rules to one side, what these guidelines said was they talked about the risk of Part 4A applying to um, income splitting done by professional practice firms. And essentially what they said was that certain arrangements would be low risk. So low risk of the commissioner applying resources to assess the compliance with Part 4A. And they gave professional firms three options. The first was that the individual has assessable income in their own hands at sort of the highest band of um, employees in the in the in the firm. The second was that fifty percent of the income would be accessible in the hands of the individual. Uh, and the third was that the effective tax rate paid overall by the individual and any companies and trusts and other beneficiaries was thirty percent or higher. That was probably assessed as a good thing, really, because it gave practitioners in in um, uh, various professional firms some guidance on what the commissioner thought was appropriate and what was not. Um, what that guideline didn't do was contain really any legal analysis or or, or or explanation of, you know, why these particular benchmarks are appropriate or you know from a from a technical and legal sense. These guidelines were then withdrawn in 2017. Late 2017, ATO withdrew the guidelines and said that they were being withdrawn because they'd been misinterpreted. Uh, and they cited some individuals using self-managed super funds to, to own interests in um, professional firms and also related party financing activities where um, a partner in a partnership mode or a, a owner of equity would sell their interest to a related party convert and then pay off a home loan and convert non-deductible debt into deductible debt. So the ATO was concerned with some particular arrangements and it could be thought of you know some particular aggressive arrangements or people doing the wrong thing. But as a result of that, they withdrew the guidelines entirely. We then had several years of, of limbo and what we've got now is, is on one March... 2021, we've got a practical compliance guideline in draft from the ATO. It's PCG 2021 D2. This this guideline makes the old one look very simple. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's extremely complicated. It talks about two gateways. So you need to you need to make it through two gateways for, for this document to apply at all. And then there's a risk matrix with a, you know, green, orange, green, amber, and red signals. And, and, and then you have to tally up a score. And depending on what score you get, it will state whether your arrangement is low risk, medium risk, or high risk of the ATO applying compliance resources to audit and so forth. 
So do the old rules that we just went through, the PSI test and then the results test and then the 80% test, all those tests, they still apply, correct? Those tests apply to work out whether some, whether the PSI rules apply or not. But what we're talking about here is the risk of Part 4A applying or, or some oh, okay. other legal basis. The problem is it's not clear. The, again, this PCG doesn't contain any technical legal analysis at all. It says that the ATO considers these arrangements to be higher risk and will devote compliance resources to audits. Now, that doesn't mean that their arrangements are breaching any tax rule whatsoever. All it says is it's this swim between the flags type approach that these things are okay and you know other things may not be basically. So it's basically just telling us what they are looking for. Yeah, yeah. So th there's two really significant points to note about these from a non, um, not, not drilling into the details too much. The first is that it applies to a wide range of professions. It applies to accounting, architectural, engineering, financial services, legal and medical professions. So it's not just accountants and lawyers. It's actually quite broad, the professions covered. And the second point is that based on this risk matrix with these traffic light system, things that were low risk under the previous, um, the previous 2017 guidelines could, uh, could potentially be high risk under these new benchmarks. And furthermore, depending on the profits and the particular arrangements of a particular firm, you could have situations where something is low risk one year and is high risk the next year, surely just due to change in profitability because it changes who, who gets entitled to what and what tax is actually paid. These rules have been heavily criticised uh, and, and they're still in draft form as well. One thing that they don't address at all is fixed draw partners, which are relatively common, at least in accountant and legal professions, where uh, you have different classes of, of partnership or equity, where you have really equity partners and you have fixed draw partners. They're, they're, to the outside world, they may all look the same, but internally they may have different rights. So typically a fixed draw partner would have not an entitlement to an overall percentage of profits. They may just be entitled to a particular number. Uh, they might get, you know, a, a portion above that, but it's not, you know, it's not 25% each, for example. Yes, and a fixed-drawn partner would usually be a senior partner who brought junior partners in, and so the junior partners basically run the business now. And so any profit over this fixed draw goes to the junior partners, and then the the senior partner just gets a fixed draw. Is that how it's usually set? Could be good either way. They could they sometimes used as a stepping stone for pr new promotions, so that you know that fixed draw could be quite a low amount. What exactly what you described could also be the case that. Really, it's just flexible arrangements that not everyone is entitled to the same percentage. That, that's essentially what it is. And you may have different voting rights as well. It might be the fixed draw partners have less voting rights than the equity partners, for example. Okay. So th th those arrangements are not dealt with at all. They're, they're actually, you cannot even use this, this guideline for those type of arrangements. Perhaps the most stinging criticism of this is from a joint submission lodged by the Tax Institute, uh, CPA, CA, the IPA, and the, the Law Council of Australia. So um, it's a pretty heavy-hitting five bodies there. 
Um, I'm impressed that they talk to each other. Is that common that these five organizations make joint submissions? Not that I've seen previously. It's quite a punchy submission. It's not it's not particularly long. It, it really asks the question, why are these firms, why are these professions singled out? How is the income derived by an accounting or legal firm any different to the income derived by a plumbing business or a management consulting firm? Why, why does it warrant differential treatment? They then make a number of statements. They, they, they say, look, there's no general principle that income has to be returned to an individual rather than a company or trust. That, that, that doesn't, doesn't exist in the law. There's specific rules such as the personal services income rules and also the general anti-avoidance rules. But if neither of those provisions apply, there is no basis for the assertion that the ATO is making is that there's some sort of principle that an individual needs to be paid for a fair day's work sort of thing. Because that, that's essentially what the ATO is arguing is that you can't underpay yourself as a owner or partner. If you're not personally remunerated enough, that's a problem on its own. And there's no provision that says that. There's nothing, the specific point from this um, joint submission is Absent specific statutory provisions, an owner of a business can decide whether to receive nothing, a little, a lot, or something in between and be taxed accordingly. Yes, true. Yes. So, there was a number of other comments made and it's worth reading, but there's other things um, noting essentially that the joint body said this document doesn't reflect their views and they largely were not consulted about the, um, uh, the, 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 the drafting of this document. They also raise queries about other particular scenarios where, for example, if someone has actually bought in and purchased um, an interest in a, in a partnership, how, I mean, that should clearly be treated a little bit differently than these sort of situations. But n- none, of this is, none of this is addressed, unfortunately. It sounds like very good points. Mm, yeah. So I guess where we're at now is we start with whether someone is an individual contractor. If, uh, sorry, if they, we start with whether someone is an employee or contractor. If they're an employee, then we don't go any further. If they're a contractor, we think about personal services, income rules, whether those apply or not. Even if those don't apply, and particularly for like professional service firms, for example, where they almost never would apply, we've got to deal with this elephant in the room Part 4A. We have some old cases about some very blatant structures. And from there, we really only have some swim between the flags guidelines from the tax office, which have been heavily criticized. We also have an updated um, tax ruling regarding the PSI rules. And it's actually, uh, I think, a very well-written and very comprehensive ruling on, on almost all aspects of the PSI rules, uh, which is tax ruling 2021 D2. That re- revisits and re- um, modernizes uh, the old TR 2001 7 and 2001 8. Now, it doesn't really immediately or drastically change the ATO's views, but what it does do is, it, I guess, it states a bit more overtly that even if personal services income rules are satisfied, Part 4A can still apply. And there's a specific example given at the very end of the tax ruling. It's example 40 
and it involves an individual who provides personal services through a family trust. They meet the results test because they're providing specific tasks at a specific fixed contract price. So the results test is presumably met. They provide all the necessary equipment and defects and so forth. So they meet the results test and the PSI rules don't apply. The example then goes on to state that essentially the trust that derives the income, income splits. So it distributes income to three children uh, who are minors with $416 each and income is distributed to the individual's wife. They say that, and, and there's no other facts really, they say that a likely conclusion of this example is that the dominant purpose of the arrangement is income splitting to which Part 4A applies. Yes, but you can also say that about a lot of businesses that are run out of trust. If this individual wasn't providing professional services but was selling teapots, you could still say, yes, the whole structure is to split income. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the most sort of worrying part of, of the entire ruling that this example is a clear example where the PSI rules don't apply. Now, they apply because the results test is met, not because there's a business structure or there's employees or business premises or advertising to people. They, they, they get out of the PSI rules because the results test is met. Because um, they charge a fixed fee. Because they charge a fixed fee. So, I guess on the spectrum of, of uh, PSI. I, I wouldn't say it's out on a technicality, but it's one of the ones where it's you know closer to the line. But they're saying that income splitting in that scenario uh, is likely to contravene Part 4A. Yes. That, that's essentially what that's saying. Yeah. And I can see that the ATO is worried about it because this is a widespread move in the industry, at least in accounting and bookkeeping and tax. And I'm sure it's the same with law. This widespread move to fixed fee contracts, the PSI rules basically shoot in the dark because everybody now passes the result test because they charge fixed fees. So I can understand that the ATO is worried about that. But the other argument is also, you know, I mean, that's one advantage of the trust that you can split income. And so why is it a problem when a professional does that, but when somebody who's selling teapots does it, it's not a problem? Yeah. And it, I think the, the really hard thing for practitioners and people to apply the rules is to know where the boundaries are as well, because what if a small amount was distributed and, and, and you know, why do different rules apply to engineering firms and medical practitioners then, you know, where's the rules for uh, plumbers and how much income they can split, for example. It's it, it, it's it's a fairly unsatisfactory air, like, position that we're in now. So, there's a lot of grey on what's appropriate, what's not, what sort of service arrange, service trust arrangement is acceptable, how do the PSI rules work, are we in or out, even if we've got certainty that we're out, could Part 4A apply, which is very hard to objectively assess that risk. So, and then we've got the, you know, the swim between the guides, swim between the flags guidance, where if people decide, it's particularly um, professional services firms decide that it's all too hard, let's just follow the, the path of least resistance. And that's a summary of uh, this area of law. In the end, it also comes down to what the tax effect is, because if the PSI rules might apply or not, but it doesn't really make any difference tax-wise because the um, deductions that are claimed could also be claimed by an employee, then you don't really need to worry so much about the PSI rules. It's really more when there are deductions claimed that an employee 
couldn't claim that you really need to watch out for the PSI rules, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The tax benefit really is income going to a company and taxed at 25% or income going to other individuals. So to use multiple tax rates or deductions being claimed. If none of those things are happening, then of course there's no um, need to really worry. But if those things are happening, particularly if they're on a substantial scale, then that's, that's where the risk lies. Welcome back. So the PSI rules are highly relevant when you want to do at least one of four things with your income from personal services. Number one, you want to park your income within a company. So you just take some of your income out through a wage or dividend and then you leave the rest in the company taxed only at 25%. You leave it in the company or you take it out as a Division 7A loan, but either way, only taxed at 25% and not at your top marginal tax rate. Number two, or you distribute that income to others through a trust so that that income is taxed at lower tax rates. Number three, you want to claim occupancy cost as a business expense, so your rent or mortgage interest. And number four, you want to employ family members and other related parties who don't do principal work. When you want to do any of these four, then the PSI rules are highly relevant to you. But if you don't, so you take all income out of the company as a wage or dividend and you don't use a trust and you don't claim occupancy cost and you don't employ family members who don't do principal work, then the PSI rules don't really affect you. Now, I know we already went through the PSI rules during the interview, but let me just very quickly run through them again. Imagine you are in a prison and you try to get out. There are three locked doors and you need to get through one of them. Each door asks you a question. The third door is particularly hard since it has two locks. So the first door asks you, how much are you paid for your labor, skills and expertise? It's less than 50% of the invoice for your labor, skills or expertise. And the emphasis on you, so not your employees or your contractors, but your own. If you answer yes, then the door opens because you have no PSI income and you're gone. If you answer no, the door stays shut. So you try the second door. The second door asks you, are you paid to produce a result with your own tools at your own risk? This is also called the results test. If you answer yes, the door opens because you run a PSB, a personal services business. If you answer no, the door stays shut. So you try the third door. And the third door is really hard because it has two locks. The first lock asks you, does less than 80% come from any one client? And if the answer is yes, you know, you don't just have one big client, you have several smaller ones. If you answer yes, then you crack the first lock and you work on the second lock. If you answer no, then you haven't cracked the first lock, but you can apply to the AGO for a PSB determination if you manage to open the second lock. But we come to the second lock in a moment. So now the second lock. The second lock is actually a very generous one because it gives you three chances. It asks you, do you have employees, business premises or unrelated clients? And if you answer yes to any of these three questions, the door opens. The PSI rules don't apply. And if you answer no, then the door stays shut and all is lost. The PSI rules apply to you. So those are the PSI rules. 
in the next episode, episode 302. Simone Daniels of NJF Lawyers in Sydney will talk about unfair contract terms. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.